Well, this afternoon we continue our series in Colossians. And you remember from last week that the Apostle Paul's burden in the opening verses is to assure these new believers that they really are saved. They really are in Christ. They really do belong to God as his holy people. Paul wants to give them confidence that they really are Christians. They'd heard the true message of Christ from a faithful minister of Christ. And the gospel they heard had produced in their hearts a true response. The certainty of eternal life. The certainty that they were united to Christ. And a real love for God's people. Faith, hope, and love. These things lived in their hearts. They were the real thing. And they needed to know that. They needed to be reassured that they really were saved. They needed confidence that they really were Christians. But being saved doesn't mean you get beamed up to heaven straight away, does it? They still needed to live in Colossae, in this world. That's why Paul starts the letter to them in verses 1 and 2. I write to you, God's holy people, in Christ, in Colossae. Both were true. They really were in Christ, and they really lived in this world. And they needed confidence for how to live as Christians in this world, in Colossae. And we need the same thing today. You need to know that you really are in Christ. And you need to know how to live confidently as a Christian in Colossae, in Kenilworth, in England. Now, why is it that so many Christians... And I don't doubt that that includes many here at Kenilworth Community Church, find it difficult to live Christianly, confidently. You know you're saved. You know you really are in Christ. But not 100% sure what difference that's supposed to make for how you live now in Colossae, in Kenilworth for your daily life, at school, at the office, at home? Well, why is that? Well, surely there are more reasons than this, but this certainly is one. When you become a Christian, your heart is changed. Your old heart just wanted to please you, but your new heart wants to please your Father in heaven. And that's a good thing. But you, just like the Christians in Colossae 2,000 years ago, have a powerful enemy. Satan, the devil, the evil one. Now, Satan cannot take that desire to please God out of your heart, but what he can do and what he does do is lie to you about how to fulfill it. And lying is what he does. Now, Colossae was an average city, not a particularly important one, but as is typical of cities, it had a mixed, multicultural, multi-ethnic population. It was the proverbial melting pot, different ideas, different worldviews, different religions. And what Satan did was to uh, try to lie to the Colossian believers about how, now that they were saved and wanted to please God, lie about how to do that. So, in effect, he says to them, you might have been saved by Christ alone, fine, but now to please God, you really need more than just Christ." You need to add in a bit of intellectual respectability, a bit of philosophy, 
and a bit of religious ceremonialism. And don't forget the supernatural. Angel worship is important too. And of course, remember to add in a good dose of very serious-looking avoidance of any normal pleasures in life. No nice food, just stale bread for you. Don't sleep on a comfortable bed. The floor is the place for seriously spiritual people. Yes, if you want to be properly spiritual, you need to punish yourself. And if you get all those things right, then just maybe, just maybe, your soul will be enlightened to a higher spiritual state and you'll really understand God and his ways and then you'll be able to please him. And what was Satan doing? Well, he's trying to complicate, to confuse, to add layer upon layer of complicated and difficult demands upon these believers to persuade them that there was some state of sort of mystical spiritual consciousness that they could reach if they found just the right cocktail of all these things. He wanted to paralyze them in insecurity and uncertainty about how to please the Father who they wanted from their hearts to please. He wanted to make this so-called higher spirituality unattainable so that they always felt like second-class citizens, second-class Christians, so that they always felt that their Father in heaven was just a little bit disappointed with them. And do you sometimes feel like that? Do you really want to please your Father in heaven, but you're not exactly sure how? What you are sure of is that it involves some kind of spiritual secret that you just haven't been able to discover. And so you live in a state of spiritual insecurity. You know you're going to heaven, you know you're saved, but you're pretty sure you're not doing this Christianity thing right here, now, in Colossae, in Kenilworth. Well, your Father in heaven doesn't want that for you, Christian, to live under that burden. He wants, or he knows that you want to please him. He put that heart in you. And he wants you to know the joy of knowing that you do please him. So Paul, knowing the Father's heart and writing as an apostle authoritatively for all the church for all time, prays for the Colossians and for you, that you would know how to please your heavenly Father. That's what he says in verse 9. We've not stopped praying for you, continually asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him in every way. What a prayer. And God himself, by his Holy Spirit, inspired this prayer, which means he intends to answer it. It is an answerable prayer. You can have this experience of knowing that you live a life pleasing to your Father, a life worthy of your Lord. This is confident Christianity. And what freedom there is in it. Confidence both that you really are in Christ and that you really do know how to please your Father in heaven while you live here now in Kenilworth. So here it is. This is how to do it. 
This is what your heavenly father wants you to know. You are saved. You have been redeemed by Christ. Now here it comes. To live by the wisdom of Christ. In the power of Christ. On your way home to be with Christ. I'll say that again and then we'll see how Paul fleshes that out in this prayer. You have been redeemed by Christ. To live by the wisdom of Christ. In the power of Christ. On your way home to be with Christ. We'll take those one at a time starting with living by the wisdom of Christ. In verse 9, Paul says, since the day we heard. Well, heard what? Well, he answers that back in verse 4. Since the day we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Since the day we heard, we've not stopped praying for you. Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what is the knowledge of God's will? Does that mean God expects you to know every detail of his sovereign providence like which sixth form college you should go to or which university or whether you should have a baked potato or chicken curry for supper tonight or whether to buy the blue shoes or the black ones no that's not at all what he means what he means is simply this understand who jesus is and what his coming what his death on the cross what his resurrection and his ascension to heaven mean. Understand who Jesus is. Understand what he has done and what he promises still to do. And what all of that means for the world and for the universe and for the flow of history and for the church and for you. Paul will expand on those things later in the letter. But basically that's what he prays for the Colossians and for you. That you would understand the big picture of God's story and how God's plan, should I say, for all things and how it all centers on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God? I know you do. Then live by the wisdom of Christ. Understand that all things, all of creation, all of history, eternity past, eternity to come, all things were created for him. It is all his story. Now understand how the, the arc of your life fits into his. Live by the wisdom of Christ. In other words, live in the reality of what God has made known about who Jesus really is. Now imagine a royal wedding. The prince, the king-to-be, is standing at the altar, waiting uh, as his bride makes her way down uh, on the arm of her father. Hundreds of dignitaries from around the world watch in silence. Dozens of TV cameras spread this magnificent moment all around the world. To one side, a, a choir of the finest voices in the land stands ready. The choir master takes his place. The organ fills the cathedral, the singers fill their lungs, ready to begin. Panis Angelicus, or some magnificent Latin hymn. 
And just in the very breath before they begin, one member of the choir grabs a mic, leaps into the spotlight, gets all the cameras on him, and goes for it. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Or what's wrong with this scene? What has this eager singer got wrong? Well, he hasn't understood the moment. He hasn't understood that this is not his story. This moment is all about the wedding of the future king to his bride. His role as a singer, as a choir member, is to use the gifts God has given him not to hijack the moment for a viral YouTube opportunity, but to adorn the story of the king. Christian, understand the story you live in. Live in the knowledge, the understanding of the moment. Christ is the risen king. He has conquered. He will soon return. The story of this world, the story of all creation, is the story of King Jesus. It's not your story. But you do have a role in it. And your role is to adorn the story of the King. Live in the wisdom of Christ. The knowledge and understanding of who He is. Second, live by the power of Christ. In verses 10 through 12, Paul describes this God-pleasing life in four ways. It's a life of bearing fruit in every good work, verse 10. Of growing in the knowledge of God, also in verse 10. Of being strengthened, verse 11. And of giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. Now what does all that mean? Well, Paul had already thanked God for the way the gospel was already bearing fruit among the Colossians. You might remember that from verse 6. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you. The gospel is already bearing fruit among you in your faith, in your hope, in your love. Your hearts are already fixed on heaven. You already have an eternal perspective that shapes all your days and your affections. Keep living this way. That's what he's saying. Keep living with eternity in your sights. Keep loving God's people. Keep trusting in Christ. Please God by keeping on bearing fruit in good works and growing in the knowledge of God as you are already doing. But something magnificent is also going on here. You see, the language of bearing fruit and growing and of knowledge is all rooted in the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so some scholars believe, and I agree, that Paul, by using this language, is hinting here at recreation. In other words, as Christians with new hearts bearing fruits, bearing fruit in good works, you foreshadow the new creation. As you love God's people, as you look forward to heaven, as you live with faith in Christ, as you adorn the story of the King, you foreshadow the new creation and growing in the knowledge of God. Well, what kind of knowledge did Satan tempt Adam and Eve to pursue? What kind of knowledge was it that Satan promised 
that opened the gates of creation to the destruction of death. Well, it was not the knowledge of God. Do you remember? It was the knowledge of good and evil. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying you can live lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, by bearing fruit in good works and growing in the knowledge of God. As you do good the way God designed you to, as you sing in the choir to adorn the story of the king, understanding your role in the story of the king and doing what God has gifted you to do, and as you pursue God to know him as he has revealed himself in Christ and in his word, you, Christian, are the beginnings of new creation right here now in Colossae, in Kenilworth. You are the first fruits of God making all things right. Being strengthened, Paul continues in verse 11. Now, our illustration breaks down here because the world is not celebrating the story of the king. The world is in rebellion against the king. And one day, we Christians will all join in the choir with the angels. But right now, in some ways, we are more like soldiers in the king's army or perhaps ambassadors in a hostile land. And living a God-pleasing life, a life worthy of your Lord, will inevitably, unavoidably bring confrontation with the world. So Paul prays that you will be strengthened so that you may have great endurance and patience. Two points here. First, you live a life worthy of your Lord when you confess your need, your weakness, your inability to live the life of faith in your own strength. You are fully pleasing to your Father in heaven when you say to him, Father, I want to live this life, but I can't do it in my own strength. Please strengthen me. Please help me. On the other hand, you are not pleasing to your father when you pretend you can do it alone. You are not pleasing to your father when you diminish the glory of Christ by thinking that you can live a Christ-like life apart from his strengthening. Second point. See in the text what power it is that comes to your strengthening. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Not just strengthened according to his might. No, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why does Paul say it that way? What's the difference between might and glorious might? Well, glory is what belongs to God alone. Glorious might is the very might that belongs to God himself, intrinsic to his own nature, but now put on display for all the world to see. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he prays a prayer that helps us understand what he's saying here. To the Ephesians, he writes, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened so that you will know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God 
towards us who believe, according to the working of, here the similarity, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that when you understand the story of the king, when you live by the wisdom of Christ, when you live your role in adorning his story, you are living new creation life, and you can only live such a life by the death-conquering, resurrecting power of God himself at work in you. Resurrection might is strengthening you, Christian. This is confident Christianity. Confidence that you really are in Christ. That you really can please your heavenly Father while you yet live here in Colossae, in Kenilworth. I said earlier, you have been redeemed by Christ to live by the wisdom of Christ, in the power of Christ, on your way home to be with Christ. Well, we've heard what Paul says about living in the wisdom of Christ and by the power of Christ. And all of it is possible only because of verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, sin is more than a black mark against your name. It is a spiritual force, an enslaving power, bent on your ultimate destruction. Christian, you were under the dominion of darkness. You were captive to darkness. You were a prisoner, a slave, a servant of darkness. You did not pick the lock of the prison cell of darkness and make your own way out. You needed a rescuer. You needed a deliverer. You needed a savior. And praise God, the Lord Jesus himself came from his father's side to save you, to break you out of the prison of sin. You are not just forgiven, you are redeemed. Jesus has set you free. No longer a slave, no longer under the dominion of darkness. You are free to live a life worthy of the Lord who saved you, redeemed by Christ, to live by the wisdom of Christ, in the power of Christ, on your way home to be with Christ. Verse 12. You will one day share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. It would take at least a whole sermon to unpack the, the riches of that promise. But for today, just hear the promise. Christian, redeemed one, you are on your way home. You are on your way to your inheritance in the kingdom of light. The great and glorious and eternal kingdom of the great and glorious and forever king. Christian, your Father in heaven wants you to live in the confidence of knowing how to please him. He wants you to know the joy and the freedom of living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you live such a life? Well, in a few weeks' time, we'll hear the Apostle Paul say it 
more simply in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live your lives in him. But here in this prayer, this Holy Spirit-inspired prayer, he fleshes that out for us. You have been redeemed by Christ to live by the wisdom of Christ, in the power of Christ, on your way home to be with Christ. So go, Christian, and adorn the story of the King. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father in heaven, it seems fitting here to pray the prayer your servant Paul prayed for us. You delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We are on our way home. So fill us now with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, such that we walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to you, while we yet live here in Kenilworth, in this world. By the power of Christ at work in us, cause us to bear fruit in every good work and to grow in our knowledge of you. Strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We give thanks to you, our Father, through Christ our King. Amen.